if you were to answer this question, uh, what would you say? What's the most common thing that little kids are scared of? What would you say? The dark. The dark. Yeah, well, I heard, I guess, they almost said at the same time. I don't know if anybody else is telling, but the dark. Yeah, kids get scared of the dark. And what is it about uh, the dark that is scary? And I was kind of, you know, I had my ideas if I was kind of listing things out. And um, there's this article on WebMD that said this fear usually begins around the age of two or three when kids start developing uh, the ability to imagine. And the, the article said uh, that they are old enough to imagine but aren't wise enough to distinguish between fantasy and reality. And the, this gives the unknown an opportunity to turn scary because in the dark, it's like there's unknowns there. Like, what is that? I can't see that. And, you know, there's, and the dark has this tendency to play tricks on our mind, like things that just look like normal objects with the lights turned on, all of a sudden in the dark look like scary monsters or tree branches look like you know, claws coming in your window. But even as adults, we have a, a strained relationship with darkness. Darkness can have an effect on our mental and emotional health. There's a type of depression called seasonal affective disorder that comes uh, in the fall months and heads through the winter where people are feeling depressed. It's this thing you can actually be diagnosed with. But even without this, many of us find it difficult to get through the winter because the daylight is shorter and the darkness is longer. And doctors and therapists sometimes recommend doing like light therapy or maybe going to a tanning booth. I had a friend uh, who would go to a tanning booth during the winter to like get his vitamin D and like get the brightness and he was like, this is great, I just I feel better. And uh, you know, you can take that if you want. But, uh, but darkness is often used also to, to depict uh, sadness, depression, and grief. We, we wear black at funerals, not at weddings. When bad things happen, it feels like darkness. Man, this has been like a dark week, or I'm just feeling dark. And darkness is often associated with loneliness. When, when it's dark, you're alone. If this room was dark, none of us were talking, we could all be together, but yet I'm alone because I don't see any of you. And so darkness is like this feeling of aloneness. If you start looking up how people describe loneliness, they describe it at, with darkness. I was in this darkness can't see anything or anybody. It's just you there. And so on the opposite, light is often associated with hope. We say things like, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Or we say, there's a ray of hope. We kind of use this, you know, a ray of light, or a ray of sunshine coming through the clouds. Like, there's a ray of hope coming uh, through. When people are in a place of despair and they find hope, they might talk about it uh, like light breaking into the darkness. Man, it was just really dark. And then I got this ray of hope, like this light broke into it. And when we were first uh, under our stay-at-home order um, back in the spring, we had some neighbors um, across the street from us, and they all of a sudden had all these little candles out lining the sidewalk at night. And we were like, what are they doing? And they gave us a call and said, hey, and we put out this little display on the sidewalk, and they said, we just wanted to make put some light in the darkness because it just feels like, it, this is everyone's kind of alone and everything's harder right now. We wanted to have this light in the darkness. And then other neighbors started doing it too, not maybe on the sidewalk, but we were putting like candles out on our doorstep and stuff. And so it's this, this things feel really dark right now. We need some light in this situation. And today we're continuing this mini series uh, leading up to Christmas Eve called The First Christmas Carols. And many of these uh, songs we sing at Christmas time are hundreds of years old, but they are far from being the first song sung about Jesus' birth. And as you're reading the first chapters of the 
Gospel according to Luke, it's almost like this musical because the characters keep bursting out in song about what God is doing through Jesus' birth, you know, like a Disney movie or something. And what, co- what is causing them to burst out in song like this? Why are they singing? You know, you, you don't, we often sing when we're happy, you know, we're walking around whistling or singing something. And what has these people singing? Why are they bursting out in song? And these were people who had been sitting in darkness for a long time. And if you don't know the history of the people of Israel, this is who, these are the people that are singing, the people of Israel, the Jewish people in the first century. And they had really messed it up with God. They had messed up the relationship with God. And in 586 B.C., God brought the consequences of that upon them. The Babylonian Empire came into their land and took them into exile. And then after that, uh, their, the, uh, the Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire. And then in 538, the Persian king Cyrus said, Okay, um, I'm going to bring in a different program here. You guys can all return back to your land. You can rebuild Jerusalem, your capital. You can rebuild the temple. And so they rebuilt it, but it wasn't ever quite the same. The people who were old enough to remember the old Jerusalem, remember the old temple, they look at this new temple and they just wept because they're like, this just doesn't compare with what it was before. Eventually Persia was defeated by the Greek Empire, and the Greek Empire was defeated by the Roman Empire. And in the first century when Jesus lived, the people of Israel still lived under the rule of the Roman Empire. And so they didn't have their own say in how their land was governed. They weren't, didn't have their own kings on the throne. They had Roman soldiers walking in their streets, and so they weren't a free people. You know, they, the money they looked at had the heads of the emperors of this other nation that's ruling over them. And so you imagine us today, what would that be like if somebody came in and just took us over? We don't get to vote for our president. You don't have a president. You just have an emperor here. You don't have your heads of your significant people on your money. You have our heads of are significant people on your money and all this stuff that just changes about we don't have any say in how we're running our own land. That's how they're feeling. And on top of this, God had gone silent. He was no longer sending prophets to them. The Old Testament closes with the book of Malachi, who was the last prophet to speak. And Malachi lived in in the middle of the 5th century B.C., so in the 400s. So like 430, 450 years before Jesus. So like 400, over 400 years of silence. And so these are people who are sitting in darkness. They're in the darkness of oppression by another nation, suffering, frustrated, confused, wondering what's going on here. They're in the darkness of silence, not hearing from God. They're also in the darkness of their own sin. The reason they went into the exile, and the reason this is all happening in the first place, is because they turned away from God. They're supposed to be in this committed relationship with God, and they broke that commitment over and over again, even as God warned them. You need to turn back to me, or this is what's going to happen. And then they didn't. And so then they're living with the consequences of that. And so let me pause for a moment and ask, what what sort of darkness do you find yourself sitting in today? Do you find yourself sitting in the darkness of suffering and affliction that has come into your life? Are you grieving and mourning some sort of loss? Are you saddened by the world and seeing this just isn't the way things are supposed to be? Like, this world is messed up and it's just wrong. Things are wrong in my life. Things are wrong in the world. Or do you find yourself sitting in the darkness of your own sin? That you've done something or been living with something and the shame and the guilt has led you into hiding and distancing yourself from others and from God? 
Or maybe you're like, uh, yeah, things feel dark, but I don't even know why they feel dark. There's just darkness there. You know you're in it, but you're not quite sure why you're in it. Just things feel dark, and I can't explain it. But whatever your darkness is, my hope and prayer for you as, we, as I've been anticipating us gathering is that Zechariah's song could become your song too because Zechariah has some beautiful words for people sitting in darkness. And so we're going to look at this song in two parts. The first part, Zechariah blesses God for bringing salvation. And then in the second part, he speaks this blessing over his son, his newborn son, eight days old, that was just born. And as he's speaking this blessing over his son, he describes what is John's role, his son, John, what's his role going to be in bringing the salvation, and what's Jesus' role going to be in bringing that salvation. So the first part is verses 68 through 75, where Zechariah praises God for bringing salvation. And as we read these verses, 68 through 75, we need to have this important backstory of Israel in our minds, because we need to know the most important event in Israel's history that happened 1,500 years before Jesus was born. And this is what was happening 1,500 years before Jesus was born. For 400 years, the people of Israel lived in Egypt. And at first it was fine, but eventually they were made into slaves, and they were treated horribly, and they were in need of rescue, of salvation. And God had made a covenant with their ancestor 400 years prior and said, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to be faithful to you. And so in uh, faithfulness to that covenant and its promises, God redeemed the Israel from slavery in Egypt. He heard their cries of distress and in mercy and compassion, he sent a man named Moses, and he, in an exodus, that's where we get that word, it's an exodus leaving there, uh, he brought them out of Egypt. And through displays of his mighty power, he defeated their enemies who hated them, and he led them to Mount Sinai so they could worship him, and so that he could be their God, and they could be his people. And this exodus event for the people of Israel, all the way from when it happened to the present day in the first century, became a model salvation event for them. It's kind of like, you know, we just want that to happen again. That's how, that's how salvation is done. We want that to be repeated. Anytime they're looking for when they need to be rescued, it's like we want another exodus to happen. God's going to come in in his compassion and mercy and in his might. He's going to defeat our enemies and he's bring us out of this. And he's going to bring us to the promised land so we can worship him again as free people. And so when the prophets talked about the future salvation God would bring, they talked about it using the language of exodus. And Zechariah uses the language of Exodus in this song. He sees that God is performing that new Exodus event now. And so listen to the words he uses in this song and see if they match up with that story of Exodus. In verse 68 through 75, he says, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Remember, slavery, redeeming out of slavery. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Remember, the Egyptians were enemies and they hated them. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Remember, it's in fulfillment of his promises and his covenant to Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so he wanted to bring them out, bring them to Mount Sinai so they could worship him and be his people and he could be their God. And so what's got Zechariah singing God's praises? Why is he singing like this? Why does he burst into song? Zechariah sees that God is coming to fill what he planned and promised 
long ago through his prophets and through his covenant with Abraham. And, and what did he plan and promise? Verse 71 says what, that this is what God spoke to the prophets. He said that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then verse 74 tells us that part of the covenant he made with Abraham was swearing, I'm going to grant you that being delivered from the hand of your enemies, you might serve me without fear. And so there's this deliverance from enemies. The people that hate you, the people that are your enemies, I'm going to save you from them. I'm going to deliver you from them. And maybe we think, like, man, I don't really think this way. I don't really feel like I have like many enemies. We have a hard time relating to this. But maybe a situation you can relate to is, have you ever um, been bullied? Or have you ever had someone at work or in your family whose presence just made you feel tense, uneasy, and on edge? And when you're around a bully, there's this constant fear. Like, what are they going to do? And they, can, they have power over you. We watch movies with bullies in them, and movies set it up so we naturally want the bully to lose. Like, and then we kind of have this, like, yeah, when it gets, you know, when they lose in the movie, it's like, we're like, yep, that's what I wanted to happen. And you're like waiting for the, the jerk to get what's coming to them. And we, we want that to happen. So for Zechariah and other Israelites, they had been living under the hand of bullies for a long time. And they were ruled by enemies and people who hate them. And Zechariah's excitement is that God is finally going to deal with these bullies. Like, the bullies are going to be gone. Can you imagine that if you were going to school every day, and there's this bully, and then all of a sudden, the bully is gone. Like, you would be so happy, like, it's been taken care of. And how will this come about? He said it in the opening verses. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. When God visits people, it can either be he's coming in judgment or in grace. And here he's coming to redeem his people out of grace. And redeem is a people is a, is a word from the slave market. To redeem a slave means that they're in slavery and you're going to set them free. And you set them free by paying the ransom price. You redeem them. So God is coming to free his people from slavery. And he's also raised up a horn of salvation, we're told. And the horn of an ox or a bull was what they used to defeat their enemies. So it was the symbol of their strength and their might. And so a horn of salvation means God is sending a mighty Savior for his people. And this person will come from the house of his servant David, which was the, the family line, you know, the royal family line. You might watch uh, the royals uh, over in Great Britain, and that's the, the, the people coming from that family line. And, the ser- and David was the royal family line of the king. In Israel, And so he's going to be a mighty Savior King. And this is how God is coming to redeem his people, through this mighty Savior King. And we already know this King's name from earlier in the book. His name is Jesus. So who are the enemies from whom God's people need saving? And we need to clear that up because often we think, well, I don't see, I don't really feel like that's what we normally teach, is that God's going to come and you know defeat all the people that are bothering me in my life. Certainly the people of Israel had earthly physical enemies. The Roman Empire had taken over their land. And one of the enemies that God promises to save his people from are all the earthly enemies that oppress his people and that rebel against him. But, but what the book of Revelation makes clear, the, book, the last book in the Bible, is it kind of pulls back the curtain and says, okay, there's all these earthly powers that might be fighting against God and against his people, but who's really behind all of those? Who's really orchestrating it all? There's an enemy of enemies behind them. And his name is Satan. 
Jesus was born, died on the cross, and he ascended to heaven, and he left the Romans right where they were. He didn't defeat the earthly enemy. But what he did defeat was the enemy of enemies. And by his death on the cross, he won the decisive victory over Satan that we no longer, no longer has power over us because now we're free from sin, we're free from death, we're free from all the things that Satan uses the whole power of over us. He opened up our way back to God. But Jesus said he will return one day to bring his kingdom to earth. And all those who have not given allegiance to him as king will be defeated. And so Satan is currently defeated, but he's not destroyed. He's still uh, in existence, and he's still behind those who are hostile to God's people. But when Jesus returns, Satan and those loyal to him will be defeated, and sin and death will also be no more. So there's like these two stages to it. It's like the decisive victory has been won, but yet there are still enemies at play. So for your own life, what enemies line up in formation against you every day? What do you feel like you're fighting against? We, we live in a fallen, sinful world, and so sometimes we experience the effects of that. Poverty, injustice, greed, sickness, cancer, and COVID-19, um, strokes. And sometimes we experience death in our families with our loved ones. And we also live in a hostile world to our faith, and so sometimes we see and experience that. But we also fight against sin in our lives and against Satan's deception and temptation. So we might see enemies in the form of the fallen world, in the form of the hostile world, in the form of sin and Satan in our lives. But here's the good news. If you turn to Jesus and surrender to him, God is on your side. God is not uh, aloof. He's not, not seeing that. He's on your side. And God is bigger than our enemies. Enemies can stand... Our enemies can stand against God as much as a sandcastle can stand against the waves. It's like, you know, if you've ever been on the beach, it's like, I'm going to build this sandcastle. It's going to be so strong. And it's like, one wave, it's gone. It's like, that's how much the enemies of God can stand against him. And we often fear people who aren't on our side. It's like, oh, I've got to do everything to please this person. If I talk about Jesus to them, or if I bring my faith up, or if I stand for uh, the morals that I know the Bible talks about, like, what are they going to think? And so we're, we fear people who aren't on our side, and we think our enemies are bigger than God. People, sin, Satan, death. Or we think, like, oh, this sin in my life that I have or is just, I, I just can't get over it. And we think it's bigger than God. We think that what stands against us is bigger than and stronger than the God who is for us. But Jesus is our mighty Savior King. And the second thing to know about this is that God is against what is against us. God stands against what is against us. God is on our side against our enemies. God fights for us against all that is against us. And the song is about how God is on our side, coming to fight the battles that we need fought on our behalf. When we are wrestling and trying to make it through a fallen world, we're fighting against a hostile world or a faith, or we're fighting against sin and Satan and death. This is all God is against all these things that are against us. And from here, Zechariah transitions from looking up, he's looking up and blessing God, and he transitions to looking down at his newborn son, eight days old, and his son John, and speaking a blessing over him. He praised God for bringing salvation, and now while he blesses John, he tells us John's role and Jesus' role in bringing this salvation. And so in verses 76 through 79, we hear this blessing he speaks over John. 
And people could see that God was up to something in John's life. When he was born and they were wondering, uh, people were wondering, what's this kid going to become? There's, you know, we saw that they were asking this. What child is this? You know, because God's hand was on his life. And in this special moment with his son, Zechariah answers their question, what is God up to in this kid's life? And starting in verse 76, Zechariah begins speaking to his eight-day-old son, John. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John will be called a prophet of the Most High. Jesus will be called Son of the Most High. But John will be called prophet of the Most High. And prophets are spokesmen for God. And why will he be called a prophet? John says, because he will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And how we prepare the people for God's coming? Verse 77 says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And so God is coming. He's raised up this horn of salvation for his people, a mighty Savior King. And what's John's role? John's role is to prepare the people for God's coming by giving knowledge of this salvation to his people by telling them there's salvation coming, there's forgiveness is coming, there's one coming who's going to bring you salvation, there's one coming who's going to bring you forgiveness. And this is exactly what we see happen in John's ministry. He later is known as John the Baptist. And what he does is he baptizes people by the Jordan River, and we're told he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so he's preparing people, like, look, make yourselves ready. The mighty Savior King's coming. He's going to bring it. Uh, he's going to accomplish forgiveness and salvation for us. But the salvation here takes on a different form compared to the first part of the song. The first part of the song focused on salvation as deliverance from enemies. Here it focuses on, focuses on salvation as forgiveness of sins. Okay, so which one is it? Are we saved from our enemies or are we saved from our sins? And the answer is both. And the, and the focus of John's ministry was the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus focused on that too, and he died to pay for our forgiveness, and this was a major focus of Jesus' first coming, and in his second coming, salvation focuses more on defeating enemies, like my kingdom's going to come to earth, and all those who are still opposed to me, you know, forgiveness, that offer is done, you've had your chance, and now I'm going to defeat all who have continued to rebel. And so what is the basis for this salvation? Where does forgiveness of sins come from? Why would God do this? What motivates him? Verse 78 says, It's because of the tender mercy of our God. If there are two words to highlight or circle in this song, they would be tender mercy. It's two words in the original language. And mercy translates the Hebrew word chesed. And I don't usually you know, spout off the original language word, but this word just comes up so often in the Bible that it's worthwhile for you to to know, um, but it's kind of it's kind of like starts like clearing your throat sound. Chesed, <laughs> not an H, but it's a Chesed. And we talked about it last week. This is God's compassionate, loyal love that takes action to help His people when they're in dire need. It's compassionate, loyal love that takes action to help His people when they're in dire need. And in verse 72, Zechariah said, "God was saving them from their enemies to show them mercy." promise to their father. And so it's the motivation back in the first part of saving from the enemies, and it's the motivation here. And then tender is often translated as compassion. It's a feeling that comes from deep within. It's a gut-level emotion 
and affection for someone. It's sympathy, pity, and, and tender-hearted love. And this is telling us that God's salvation and forgiveness flow fundamentally from His tenderness and His compassion toward us. So I want those words, tender mercy, to sink in for you. If you're sitting in sin right now, I feel like, man, I've just been really messing up, or, you know, something's coming to mind of, like, uh, I've messed it up with my spouse or my kids or this person at work or some relationship you have or just, you know, by yourself. It's like, man, I just have not been living the way I need to live. If you're sitting in sin, God comes to you offering forgiveness with a heart of tender mercy towards you. And, and why does God forgive? It's because of his tender mercy. It's nothing from us that we do. It's not like, well, you know, I'll forgive because you apologize so well. Or because you cleaned up your life so I know you really mean it. Or because whatever it is, there's nothing about us. Why does he get forgive? It's because of his tender mercy. God saves from his heart. Forgiveness flows from his heart. He forgives from the heart. It's not this heartless thing where it's like, fine, you asked for it and now I'm just going to dispense it. You know, like he's some sort of machine that just kind of pops it out. Like we just say the right words. And God dispenses forgiveness or he dispenses salvation, but he forgives from the heart. And it's not a resentful, fed up with you action where he says, well, look what you've gotten yourself into again, and now I have to come get you out of it. He's not withholding and stingy and begrudging in his forgiveness. He's tender-hearted, overflowing, warm, and embracing. It's this tender mercy is how he, why he forgives. And here's the thing. Often we think that God is against us. We think that our sins make us God's enemy. And it's true. They once did. But while we were God's enemies, Jesus died to take away our sin. God shows love even for his enemies. And that love is what motivated him to send Jesus to die for us. So God loves his enemies. And out of this tender mercy, he sends Jesus to die and not after we've cleaned up our life, after we've done all the right things, he sends us to die while we're his enemies, while we're still in our sin. He sends Jesus to die. Shows love even for his enemies. And he did this out of his tender mercy. And so if you've turned to Jesus and surrendered your life to him in order to be forgiven of your sins, you are no longer God's enemy. And even if you haven't, he still has this tender mercy of like, I just want you to come. He has this open-armed, open-hearted welcome for you. But even after we do that, we tend to think that when we sin, God is against us. When we mess up again, God is against us. When we totally blow it, God is against us. When we don't read our Bibles enough or pray enough or do church things enough, God is against us. Well, I had a bad week this week, so you know God must be looking down on me with these arms crossed against me. We think that we're God's enemies. But if you turn to Jesus, nothing could be further from the truth. God is not repelled by you when you sin, but drawn towards you. God does not hold you at arm's length, but he pulls you in to embrace you with this tender mercy. God is not hard and cold towards you, but his heart is gushing forth with tender mercy towards you. And if you are in Christ, you're no longer God's enemy. You once were, but you never will be again. You are not the enemy that God is fighting against. He may fight against your sin, but he's not fighting against you. So what will God do because of his tender mercy? Let's read verses 78 and 79. They say, Because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah says, by the tender mercy, by God's tender mercy, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This is the second use of the word visit. We saw it earlier when he said that God had visited and redeemed his people in verse 68. And here he's talking about the coming of the Messiah and the, the mighty Savior King. And that's the way God's going to visit his people is through Jesus coming, his son, through this mighty Savior King. Zechariah calls Jesus the sunrise or the dawn. In the Old Testament, there were prophecies about how the Messiah would come and he'd be like this star. This, he would give light to God's people. He would give light to the nations, to the world. And Zechariah says, he will visit to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. These are, these are words used in the Old Testament to describe people who are both spiritually and physically oppressed. They're pushed down. And the famous passage read at Christmas time that we read earlier is Isaiah 9. And verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them a light has shone. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, comes as a sunrise in our darkness. But what does this mean? You know, it's like, okay, that's a nice little image, but what does that exactly mean? And the, the final line makes it clear. It says, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So they are sitting in darkness. You're sitting there like, what am I going to do? I'm in this darkness. I'm in the shadow of death. It's shadow and darkness has fallen on me. But when Jesus comes, they get up and walk out of it because he guides their feet. To where? Into the way of peace. They walk into the way of peace. And this peace doesn't just mean, okay, I feel calm with no anxiety or stress or worry. And it doesn't just mean no war or fighting. It's deeper than that. This comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness or completeness. And it's this thing, it's this concept of uh, if everything is in a state of shalom, it's in a state of flourishing and wholeness and delight. And one author summed it up as it means the way things ought to be. If things are in shalom, things are the way they ought to be. So if I was to sum up this song with one big idea, it would be this. Jesus is God's sunrise on your darkness. Jesus is God's sunrise on your darkness. These were people sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, but God came to them out of his tender mercy, out of his faithfulness to his promises to bring them out of darkness, and he did that by sending the sunrise. Jesus is God's sunrise on your darkness. And and the place of darkness is where the forces of opposition to God reign in sin and Satan and death and, and people who are opposed to him. Darkness is the, is the world without God. Darkness is where the world is as it shouldn't be, as it's not supposed to be. And Jesus wants to lead us out of that. Jesus wants to lead all of us out of that. It's important to note that Jesus doesn't only save us from something, but he saves us for something. He, he saves us from the darkness to lead us into the way of peace. We're saved for a purpose, to live how we ought to live. And in verses 74 and 75, God, Zechariah said, God would deliver them from their enemies so that they might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all their days. Salvation from enemies enables them to serve God without fear, that we no longer have fear. Now I can serve him in righteousness and holiness. So I ask again, what darkness do you find yourself in today, right now? you feel beat up and bullied by this fallen world with everything 
not the way it's supposed to be? Do you feel hostility towards your faith? How the world rejects both the morals and the message of what you believe? Are you sitting in the darkness of your own sin? It's secret, it's hidden, there's guilt and shame, and it's lonely, and it's like, if, if anybody knew this about me, they would never love me, they would never accept me, they would totally reject me, and that's in the darkness. It puts distance between you and God, it puts distance between you and other people, and sin is anti-relational. Brick by bit, brick, it puts walls between us and our relationships with God and other people. It puts us in darkness. Whatever darkness you're in, darkness stands no chance against light. It doesn't have a fighting chance. There's nothing that darkness can do against light. I brought this dinky little flashlight. If we were to shut this whole room down and make it completely dark, you'd be like, wow, that's, you know, that's a lot of darkness, a whole room full of darkness. This dinky flashlight, the darkness would stand not a chance against this dinky little flashlight. It can do nothing to stop this flashlight from shining forth. You would all see it, right? It doesn't matter how much darkness there is. It cannot stop light. It's, darkness stands no chance against the light. And Jesus is God's sunrise to defeat whatever enemy you face, whatever darkness you find yourself in, Jesus is the sunrise to defeat it. There's no amount of darkness that can overcome it. Darkness stands no chance against the light. So if you're sitting in darkness because of your own sin, your sin is what got you there. But it doesn't have to keep you there. God's action on our behalf does not flow from anything that we've done. It flows from His faithfulness and from His tender mercy. This is the kind of God He is. He comes to the aid of people who are in dire need. We're not people who get ourselves out of the mess we're in. We're sitting in the darkness and He comes into it. And Jesus comes into that as the sunrise. We know where the story ends. He comes as this baby and He grows up. But how does he bring us out of the darkness? He dies on a cross. So we're sitting in this darkness because of what? If we're in the darkness, this fallen world, because of our sin, we sit in it because of our sin. These people deserve to be in the darkness, in the shadow of death. We deserve to be in it too. Our sin got us there. But how does Jesus take, it, take us out of it? He comes into it, and he takes our place in it. He bears it on the cross. He bears the darkness and the death that we deserve. And he goes, he takes our place in it so that we can come out of it. And then he uh, takes that penalty of everything that, all the darkness we brought into our life, Jesus takes it all upon himself so that we can be free of it. So we can walk out of it without um, it bearing down on us anymore. How does he defeat our enemies? How do we get out from the hand of our enemies? They're no longer oppressing us and killing us. Jesus went and got killed by the enemies of Israel at this time. He died at the hands of the Romans. He's crucified on a cross. Their favorite way of telling people, don't mess with us. So Jesus dies at the hands of the enemies of the people of Israel. The bad news is that we deserve the darkness and shadow of death that we're in. But in God's mercy, he enters into it to take our place and free us from it. He pays for what we deserve by sending his son. And this is what it means for God to visit us. So just in closing, as you think about the people you know in your life at this Christmas time, Christmas can be a time of joy, but there's also many people that 
it's very difficult for them. There's people missing sitting around the table who may have died this year, possibly from COVID, but possibly from other things. There's people for whom Christmas is just rough because they can't visit family that maybe there's strained relationships or there's distance or just COVID complications make it so it's like families aren't getting together or they're sitting in spiritual darkness, not, you know, besides those physical issues. So there is many sitting in darkness, feeling alone and without hope around you. And Jesus is the light that can lead them out. And isn't that a beautiful picture as we think about what is our mission supposed to be in this world? We're really supposed to be John the Baptist. Our mission is to tell people, give them knowledge of the salvation and the forgiveness of sins. It's like, well, there's a sunrise that can come into your darkness and he's come into my darkness and just let me tell you about him. Like, it, you, things may feel dark and heavy right now, but look, I know about this great uh, man who lived who actually was the son of God who can come into your darkness. And we can imitate God's tender mercy toward even our enemies. That this is what God has done to us. That when we were enemies, God had tender mercy toward us. He had compassion toward us. And so even those people that we have a hard time dealing with, we can imitate that to him. So we need to remember what Paul said. He said, Apostle Paul said, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness. And we have this Christmas Eve invitations and this opportunity this time of year to be a a light in the darkness and invite people to see. Let's uh, introduce them to the sunrise who can lead them out of their darkness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, that we don't have to live in darkness and gloom under sin and Satan and death and a fallen world, but that you come into it to free us, that Jesus took upon himself the penalty and consequences of it all, so we don't have to bear it ourselves. Lord, would you help us to receive him as our light and to walk with him each day. Since then we pray. Amen.